the box, maybe? Thank you. You know which one it is? Well, church, as we come into what is the last of our little mini-series at the beginning of Joshua, um, I just have been reflecting these last couple of weeks on this book and how there's really, you know, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a challenge, I think, or a contradiction or a, or a tension for us in the book of Joshua. And I imagine if you've taken time to read it in the last couple of weeks, you may have felt that tension. Uh, and there's a, maybe a couple of them in there. But I think there, that for our culture today and for our society and for the ways that we um, often want to interact around our faith and around our engagement with the world, we have this tension with any kind of terminology or any kind of ideas that lead us towards the concept of militance or violence or aggression or war. And, and I think even in the church today, what we see is that there is... There's uh, some Christians who are moving further away from that terminology, and there are other Christians who are embracing it in a way that might be really concerning. It certainly is for me, as I see some believers who are taking uh, some, some ideas about aggression and violence, and they, they want to just bring them wholesale into the church, and, and we've got to, you know, we even sing songs like a couple of weeks ago about fighting a battle. You know, when I fight, I fight on my knees, and we'll come back to that, but there's a, um, there's a number of songs out today that kind of have this aggression quality. You understand? I mean, have you seen this yourself? And we see it if you, if you get anywhere into the, the Christian blog world or, you know, online media, social media, and you see the types of posts that come up from believers, there is this other side of it where there are, there are a number of people who are kind of embracing this idea of, of war and conflict and battle. And what I want to do today is, is I want us to, to have the, maybe the courage, but also the wisdom to kind of lean into some of that language, but really understand and embrace how God intends for us to appropriate it today. And I think if you've been reading the book of Joshua, you read these passages where where, you know, the Israelites are literally killing every man, woman, child, animal, donkey, lamb, goat, you know, everything in a city. You come to these places where God pours out his judgment through his people on a world that is disobedient and rebellious, uh, a world that is wicked and has embraced evil. And sometimes that makes us queasy, doesn't it? And I imagine if, if we were called to do something like that today, we would probably throw our hands up and say, no, that's not of the Lord. God wouldn't ask me to do that. But there are other people who read these passages and they, they get a little, I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's appropriate to say a little bloodthirst, but there's almost like this eagerness to step into something like that. And I've even seen... Um, you know, I was, I was looking for images, for example, for, our, for the title of the sermon today, which is Warrior God, which doesn't sound like a very pacifist kind of uh, title for a sermon, right? But I saw a lot of these images that came up of, you know, very much a mix of patriotism and some of these Old Testament themes 
and, and a desire to kind of get out there and fight. And I have to admit, I was concerned and, and even troubled by some of that. But this is the tension that we live in, is that we actually follow a God who did command His people to go into a place and exact His judgment on the world in very physical ways, ways that, were, uh, that could not be turned back from, you know, the death of many people. And, you know, my, it's really not my goal today to address all of that in the sense of resolving it all for you. But I do hope that we can come away with a sense of uh, what might God be asking you to do, me to do? What might he be asking us to do as it involves this concept that he is indeed a warrior God? That he is a God who fights battles? That he is a God who, he has swords, right? God has weapons. But he's also the God who turns weapons. If you read in, if you read in the prophets, he turns he turns uh, spears into plowshares, and he turns you know, swords into farming utensils. This is a God who not only has weapons, but also breaks weapons. So if you would open up your Bible to the book of Joshua, and we're going to be looking really at the last few verses of the chapter we were in last week, which is chapter 5, verses 13, 14, and 15. Now, last week, we, I think we covered almost three chapters, and this week we're covering three verses. Okay, so we're going to just kind of dive into this a little bit and say, what, what is going on here, first of all? And we always want to ask ourselves, what's happening here? What was happening historically? What was happening uh, for the people involved? What did it mean for them? And then based on what it means, what are we to do with it? These are the kinds of questions we want to ask. Whenever we come to the scripture, what happened? What did it mean for them? And therefore, what are we to do with it? What does it mean for us? So in Joshua chapter 5, 13, I'm just going to read these three verses to you. Uh, please read along. And then I just want to kind of pick them apart a little bit and see what's there for us. So it says, uh, remember, by the way, we looked at it last week. The, the Israelites had just crossed the Jordan River. They had just entered into the promised land, right? This is Canaan. This is the place that God had given them. And when they crossed the Jordan River, right, the water piled up. The people crossed on dry land. The flood waters come back. There's no escape. After they enter the promised land, God says, all right, men, time to get circumcised. So now you have not only nowhere to go, but no way to defend yourselves. But I've got you. And then it says this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you for us or for our enemies? Verse 14, Neither, he replied. The Hebrew literally just says, No. <laughs> no. The answer to your question is no. I'm not either for you or for your enemies. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And now if you were to read on, what you would see is that this man holding a sword gives Joshua the battle plan for conquering Jericho. 
you guys probably know the story. Maybe you've sung the songs. You march around the city for six days, blowing your trumpets, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Then on the seventh day, you march around the city six times, blowing the horns with the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh time around, everyone shouts, and the walls crumble down, and then the people go in, not only to take the city, but to take the life of every man, woman, and child in the city. The city is devoted to God for destruction. That word uh, devoted is the same kind of language of, of a sacrifice put on the altar that's burnt up, and the smoke rises up to God, and it says in the scripture so many times that God smells the smell of the, of the sacrifice. And you can almost imagine just the rubble and the destruction and maybe the fire that is caused in this city. And the smell goes up to the heavens. And this city is a sacrifice for the Lord. But we might pause here and ask, what in the world is going on here? In fact, it came up in our group the other night. Sam, you were talking about it. And you said, is this an angel? Is this a man? Who is this? What is this guy? And I want to suggest to you that it seems to me that everything we have into the text points to the idea that this is God himself on earth in what we would consider, what we theologians would call the pre-incarnate Christ, which just means this is Jesus before he was born of a Virgin Mary, taking on some kind of human shape, appearing as a man, but God himself on earth to talk to Joshua. Now you might ask, well, how do you get that from the text? Well, let's look at a few things. First of all, Joshua sees this man. He's standing there with a sword. Uh, Are you for us or against us? He says, neither. He says, but I'm the commander of the army. And I'm going to use a word that, that, you know, we often don't use, but the army of Yahweh. This is not just the army of a God or the army of the Lord. This is the army of of the personal name God of Israel. Who is the commander of the God of Israel? Who is the commander of the armies of God? That's what I meant to say. (laughs) And what we see all over the scripture is that the Lord is the commander of the armies of God. You know, in English, we talk about the Lord of hosts. You see that in your Bible, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Hosts means army. God is the Lord of armies. God is the commander-in-chief, right? He's at the top. And no one is commander of the army except the commander-in-chief himself, the God of the universe, Yahweh. In this case, in the person of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, before he has fully taken on human form, he is appearing as a man. And by the way, this happens in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Do you know that story where Abraham is greeted by three, they call them angels, but one of them is called the angel of the Lord. And two of the angels mysteriously don't say anything, and one of them says everything. And every time that angel talks to Abraham, it says, the Lord said to him, Yahweh said to him. And then they have this conversation. He says, you're going to have a son in a year. And uh, he's going to be the one that I bless the world through. He promises that Abraham's going to have Isaac. And then they go for a walk at the top of the hill, and they look out. And what do they see? They see Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And God says, by the way, you know, since we're friends now, I trust you. Let me fill you in on my plans. I'm going to destroy those two cities. And Abraham says, whoa, 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 wait. 
What if there were, what if there were righteous people in that city? And honestly, I don't remember all the numbers, but he's like, if there are 50 righteous people, will you save the city? Oh, yeah, yeah, for 50, I'd totally save the cities. Well, what about for 40? Oh, yeah, of course, for 40. Well, don't be mad at me, Lord. What about for 30? Well, Abraham, of course, for 30 righteous people, I wouldn't destroy the city. What about for 20? What, I think it gets down to 10, right? He says, if there's 10 righteous people, would you destroy the city? He says, Abraham, look, we're close. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be direct with you. Even if there's 10 righteous people in those two entire cities, by the way, they're probably towns. They're probably not like, don't think 100, 200 million people. Think maybe like 500 people, 700 people, 1,000 people, maybe, maybe. He says, if there's 10 righteous people among those hundreds or maybe thousands, then I won't destroy it. God looks, there's not 10. And then it says this in the scripture. It says, Yahweh, the Lord, called down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Yahweh called down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Two Yahwehs. One is Jesus. One is the Father. And we know the Holy Spirit's doing His thing in the whole process too, right? There are these glimpses of this concept of Trinity in the Scripture even before Jesus comes on the scene. So the first is, Jesus is the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the commander of the armies. Second thing is this. When Joshua sees this man and finds out who he is, he gets down on his knees and he bows down to him. What happens every time an angel has a person bow down in front of them? What do they say? No, 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 no. Get up. I'm a servant like you are. Don't worship me. This Lord of the armies of Yahweh just stands there and takes it. And then finally, and we hinted at this last week, do you remember how I said that everything that happened to Moses happens to Joshua? Because God is showing the people that they can trust Joshua just like they trusted Moses. So Moses parts the water, Joshua parts the water. Moses has all the people circumcised, Joshua has all the people circumcised. Moses sees a burning bush where the voice of Yahweh speaks to him and he says, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. He has a personal face-to-face encounter with God. Joshua stands in front of a man who tells him, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. And he has a personal encounter with God. Face-to-face with Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And it just fits with all of the, the other pieces of the puzzle. If it happened to Moses, it had to happen to Joshua. And here's the moment. Revelation from God directly. From the mouth of God to the ears of Joshua. This is your calling. This is your purpose. So the very first thing just to recognize is that this, this pre-incarnate Christ, this this uh, manifestation of the, pers- the second member of the Trinity in person, right in front of him, face-to-face talking. This is the kind of encounter Joshua's having. And I think if Joshua had known who that was, I don't think he quite knew who it was. But, you know, the Old Testament, or, or rather the New Testament, speaks about the Old Testament characters that they had belief in the Messiah. That's what Christ and Messiah, they mean the same thing. This is a pre-incarnate Messiah. They had belief in the Messiah. They had belief in the promise of restoration. They had belief that, that God would indeed show up for them. And here he does for Joshua. 
So that's the first thing I want you to understand here, is that both from a historical reality, like this happened in time, in space, in Israel, or outside of Jericho, you know, almost, what is it, almost maybe just about 3,000 years ago, right? A little longer, actually. Jesus showed up and talked to Joshua. By the way, you know what Jesus is actually the English name for the Greek name, for the Jewish name, Joshua. Yeshua, right? Jesus means Joshua. Joshua means Jesus. They're the same name. And even though that Joshua came first, we know that really it was Jesus who came first. So Joshua meets his namesake a good 1,300, 1,200 years before he was born. Isn't that amazing? Next thing is that Joshua asked this man, are you for us or for our enemies? And I understand completely why in English they translate it neither. But again, the answer is just no. Though, no. I am not for you. I am not for your enemies. I'm for the Lord. Right? I'm for the Lord. And I was just thinking this morning of a song that we sing. Uh, um, uh, oh man, now I can't remember the name of it because I was singing it this morning. I had it in my head. But it says, um, you are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am, right? Yeah, exactly. who you say I am. Who you say I am is the name of the song. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. And we sing that, and that's true. And I don't want to detract from that in any way. God is for you. But he is not unequivocally on your side. God is not on your side in the sense that you've got a team and someone else has a team, and God's like, I'm going to join your team. That's not how it works. God has a team, and Satan has a team, and he says, come join my team. It's very different. Jesus is the captain of the team. He's the one that invites the people onto his team, not the other way around. And I think sometimes what we do as Christians is that we do things like this. We say, oh, I've got this great idea. God, will you please bless my idea? Oh, I've got this fantastic strategy to accomplish this purpose. God, can you make this strategy work? What you're basically saying is, God, I started this team, and I'd really like to have you on it. You remember, did you do the playground? I don't know if they still do it anymore. Maybe it's not politically correct. On the playground, you have two kids, and you separate them, and they start choosing members of their team, right, for kickball or volleyball or baseball or whatever it is, right? And always, like, yeah, like who's going to be picked last, right? So then what we would do, we kind of squat. We're like, okay, we don't want someone to feel bad. So we would say, okay, let's get the two worst people, and let's make them the captains and let them pick, right? And that's really, in a way, that's kind, right? But that's not how God does it. <laughs> That would be like if, because let's be face, let's face the facts here. If you and Jesus are on a team, you're the worst player, right? So that's like, let's get you up here and let you decide how the teams are going to play out. You know, you could, re, you could read the answer to this question in one of maybe at least two ways. One is God could be saying, I'm not on either of your teams. 
And I think that would make sense to us pretty easily. But what if God were saying, I'm not for you or for your enemies because in a sense I'm for both of you. Now I think that is harder for us to understand because one of the teams is about to be annihilated by the other, right? Like literally. How can God be for someone that his judgment is on? But I suggest to you that God actually loves even those who his, who his judgment rests on. That God is even for those who are being knocked down in the moment. That God even loves those who will end up in destruction. So it's not just that God's not on either team. It's, in a sense, it's that they're all on his team. In a sense, we're all children of God. And in, in another sense, we become children of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that in a sense both of those are true? Like the whole world is created by God, so he's the father of all. But in a very special way, he's the father of those who are adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. It's that faith in Jesus Christ, that work that he did. Oh, our cross isn't there. Not that he did on the wreath, but that he did on the cross. The work that Jesus did on the cross, when he died for your sins and for mine, when he, when he took the penalty of death and took the shame and took the guilt, and when he put it all to death in himself, And then when he rose again in victory over the grave and over death and over sin, and he said, and and it says in Colossians, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Right? Is that Jesus becomes this almost magnet for family. But Jesus is the one leading the team. That same passage in Colossians 1 says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the head. He's the firstborn. He's the one in charge. He's in control. And he's inviting you to join him, not the other way around. It's so important. And so one way or another, or maybe in both senses, he says, I'm not on your team. But you can be on my team. Let me tell you how. And then, of course, Joshua falls on the ground. And what does he do? He humbles himself before the God of the universe who tells him, take off your sandals. Interesting that he tells him to take off his sandals when at this point his sandals aren't even touching the ground. (laughs) He is laying uh, prostrate on the ground, in the dirt, in the dust. And God says, take those sandals off. Because this is a special place. Why is it a special place? Because I'm here. Right? Humble yourself. For us, this would actually feel not only humbling, but humiliating. Right? And I think in that culture, it's a different kind of understanding of respect and honor and deference. You know, here in, here in the United States, uh, we kind of pride ourselves that there is no royal family. Right? There's no one that you walk into a room that you by law have to bow down before. But in other cultures, in other times, in other places, in the past, today, there are people who have an understanding that it's actually an honor to be in the presence of certain people. Right? It's actually a privilege to be face to face with a king. 
Now, we could talk about whether that's suitable between men and women. But one thing is very clear. It is absolutely suitable between men and women and God. But we lose some of that. We have a hard time with it. You know, I'm not saying this is inherently wrong, but it does display something about our culture when a lot of times people say, you know, oh, I had an encounter with Jesus. Well, what'd you do? Oh, we sat down and had coffee together and talked about this, that, and the other. And look, maybe Jesus did that with that person. But it's rare that you hear today in our culture, oh, I came face to face with Jesus. What'd you do? Well, I got down on my face before him and I told him I wasn't worthy to be in his presence. And then I told him that, I, you know, I, that he should leave me or else I'm going to die. Like that's not the typical response in our culture, right? But there's something to that that we need to remember, we need to hold on to. So this Jesus, who is worthy of reverence, this Jesus who is the one, the, the commander of the team, the captain of the team, this Jesus has a sword drawn, right? He's ready for action. He's ready for battle. This is the same Jesus that in the New Testament, when he returns in the book of Revelation, we read about this. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth to destroy his enemies. This is the same God, the same God who's, again, called the Lord of hosts. This is the same God who, who destroys his enemies. This is the same God that is mighty to save. He has a strong right hand. And this is the same God who willingly allows himself to be put to death on a cross. It's just a difficult tension. It's the same Jesus who allows himself to be walked all over by the Pharisees and Sadducees and by the Romans. Right? It's the same Jesus that we call meek but who's also powerful. It's the same Jesus who says, turn the other cheek, and yet in the final days, whole nations will be destroyed in the last battle. It's a tension. It's a tension. Now, here's how I think we often get this wrong, that I think this passage helps us to understand how to get it right. And it's like this. Are you a warrior in God's army? Are you? You ever sing the song? I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. Right? We are, we are called to battle. We are called to fight. We talked about it last week even. We're called to fight. But here's what we often get wrong. We look at the world around us and we think, there's my enemy, there's my enemy, there's my enemy, there's my enemy. There's a battle that I can fight and maybe win. There's a battle that I can fight and maybe win. I'm going to run away from that one because that looks scary. Right? We, we hear the message, you are a soldier in God's army, and then we start looking for enemies and looking for battles. And then we decide whether to fight them or not, and we often decide what ammunition to bring, what weapons to bring, what tactics to use, what strategies to employ. But we're reminded here that that's not at all what God has called us to do. 
all of chapter 6, I think, is Jesus telling Joshua, here's the battle I want you to fight, and here's how I want you to fight it. And here's when I want you to do it. He gives the who, he gives the what, he gives the how, he gives the when. And I think today, so many of us, we're either afraid to fight the battle, so we do nothing, we're passive, right? Too many passive Christians. Or we're too eager to fight the battle that we jump into the wrong battles the wrong ways. So what do we need to do? Well, I think there's three things that we can do. Very simple. This is going to take 20 seconds. Number one, don't enlist God to your battle. Let him enlist you to his. Okay? You're not the commander enlisting soldiers. He is. So, so we're the ones who need to enlist. Right? Let Jesus enlist you. Don't try to enlist Jesus in whatever your scheme, plan, tactic, strategy, battle, fight, whatever it is. Simple, right? Second thing, don't try to figure out how to overcome your enemy. It sounds so counterintuitive. It sounds passive and weak, but it's biblical. Don't try to figure out how to beat the enemy. Let Jesus tell you how to, how to beat the enemy. Let him instruct you. So maybe you figured out, okay, you know, God's the one who's going to decide who I fight and all that, but then I'm going to figure out how to do it. No, let him tell you how to do it too. And the third one is, don't be prideful in it. And I even wrote down here in my notes, don't try to be so proper. I think a lot of us, we're, we're worried about how we're going to look. And so we won't do the things that God asks us to do. Rather, humble yourself before Jesus. Let Jesus humble you. So let Jesus enlist you. Let Jesus instruct you. And let Jesus humble you. And then all you have to do then is just go out and do what he says. Just go out and do it. If Jesus tells you, hey, you're going to look like a moron. I want you to march around a city six times blowing trumpets. And on the seventh time, shout. That's going to get him. That's going to scare your enemy. And it's going to work. Right? If any human came up with that strategy, we would not let them be in charge of any fighting force on earth. Right? This doesn't even work in like Red Rover. Like you can't, this, this is not winning tactics. How many times? Oh, Gideon, you've got an army of 6,000. Hey, could we send uh, 5,400 of them home? Wouldn't that be better? Let's go with 600. Because I think 6,000 is way too many. And again, I actually may have the numbers off. There might have been more. But he says, well, let's send the vast majority of these people home because, you know what, I don't think you, I don't, not only will you not win with that many, you're only going to win if you have this few. Horrible tactics. Right? But it happens over and over in Scripture. And, and sometimes, it's, you know, it's not always about a battle, but it's always about a battle. And that's the secret to all this. It doesn't always look like fighting, but it's always a battle, right? Because our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's the powers and principalities of the air, right? Our, we have a different fight. By the way, Israel had the same fight 
in a different time under different circumstances. Right? Back then, if you wanted to have access to God, you needed to go to the tabernacle, to the Ark of the Covenant, where God Himself sat. That was His throne room. If you wanted access to God, you needed to go through Israel to get to Him. And so all these people that were opposed to Israel were opposed to God. That was their battle. Now, the Holy Spirit comes to us through Jesus, and we are the throne room. We are the temple. And so now, everyone who is opposed to us, you know, they're not inherently opposed to God. It's just a different dynamic because they can have a relationship with God without us. Right? Now, God makes them one of us. It's just the dynamics are a little weird, I understand, but it's just a different circumstance. So now, the real enemy is whoever is keeping that person from Jesus. And that's not a person. That's a devil. That's a, a, a disobedient angel, a fallen angel, a demon. That's a, a worldview. That's a mentality. That's things like pride and arrogance. It's not a person. So we have a different enemy. So God calls us into different battles. But all that to say, like, Jesus will ask you to do weird things. Crazy things. He tells his disciples, hey, I need a donkey. So can you just walk down the street and you're going to see a donkey there? Can you just tell the guy, my master needs this donkey? And he's going to say, great, take it. That sounds like foolishness. But it works. It's part of the battle. Jesus says, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be treated badly. You're going to be scorned. But preach my name anyway. Right? So these are the things. Ask God, God, what is the battle you want me in? That's God enlisting you and not you enlisting God. God, what's the battle you want me in? Then do what Joshua did. Go to the feet of Jesus and ask him, what do you want me to do? You know you can do that? You know that you can go to Jesus and you can ask Him, what do you want me to do? And by the way, He wrote a lot of it down for you. So in combination of this Scripture, in combination of being led by the Holy Spirit, in combination with the community being led by the Holy Spirit, we can ask Jesus, what do you want us to do? And he can tell us. And then, when it sounds crazy, because sometimes it will, humble yourself. Put yourself face down on the ground. Because this is what Joshua does. He says, he falls, fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? He just humbles himself before, before Jesus and he says, what do you want me to do? And then Jesus tells him, and what does he do? He goes and he does it. Do you know that, that the Israelites won every single battle in the promised land when God gave them the marching orders? And they lost every single battle that they went into without him. That's a pretty good track record. Right? Isn't that a really good track record? 100% victory when God tells you what to do. 
0% victory when you tell you what to do. Does that sound like a biography of your own life and mine? Man, that is a really uh, embarrassing book about my life. Every time God's in charge, victory. Every time I'm in charge, failure. So church, this is it. This is the end, this is the end of the, the message because that's the whole story. It's these three verses. It's very simple. Jesus is there. He's a warrior. He's enlisting you, not the other way around. And all you have to do is ask him what you, he wants you to do and then do it in, in humble reverence. So my takeaway is this. Since our God is a warrior, and I didn't actually hit on this, I forgot to. Since our God is a warrior, it changes the way we fight. I didn't say it directly, but it's just simply this. There are all sorts of things that you think you need to do to fight for your faith or fight for the church or fight for God that you don't need to do because you're not the biggest, baddest warrior on the battlefield. And my, my example is this. You know, have you seen the Avenger movies? Anyone? No one? Okay, five people. Okay. The Avenger, everyone's seen the... Okay. When you watch an Avenger movie... It's really funny because there's like these aliens and magical beings and all of a sudden, and people come up with tanks and helicopters to try to fight them, right? And you're like, they're not going to be able to do anything. And then, the, then like five people show up. There's this whole army that can do nothing. And then five people show up or one person shows up. Like, you know, there's an entire army, but then Thor shows up. Or there's an entire army, but Iron Man shows up. And what, is, what happens with the army? What do you see them doing the rest of the movie? Nothing. Nothing. They don't do anything the rest of the movie because they're useless. No offense. But Iron Man can get the job done. Or the Hulk can get the job done. Jesus gets the job done. It's crazy to me how many of these battles in Joshua, the Israelites don't have to actually pick up their sword. Well, they do. They have to pick up their sword and show up, but they don't have to actually fight. Isn't that crazy? So since God is a warrior, it changes the way we fight. We fight only when God says so, only with whom he says to, and only with his battle plan. So it all starts in prayer and submission. Prayer and submission are the keys to being a fantastic warrior in God's army. Nothing else. Nothing else. You don't need talent. You don't need education. You don't need... Strength, like physical strength. You don't need um, like great people skills. There's some really powerful people in God's army with horrible people skills. Right? You need prayer and submission. Now, here's my personal confession. I hate that battle plan. I hate it because I'm, I'm a capable person. I'm smart. You know, I've got good ideas. I'm reasonably good with people, right? And I can get things done. I'm really good at getting things done. I don't like that plan. But it doesn't work when I do my plan, and it works when I do that plan. But like a stubborn mule, I keep going back to my plan instead of doing God's plan. What kind of craziness is that? That's actually not so smart. That's actually not so wise. That's not a good strategy. So it turns out I'm actually not smart. I'm horrible at strategy. And I'm really not good with people because I could go to Jesus and I don't. It's almost like, definitionally, 
everything I thought about myself without Jesus is not true. But then when I go to Jesus, they all become true again. All of a sudden, I'm strong, victorious, powerful, wise, all these great things. Just because I went to Jesus. Isn't that crazy? So that's it, folks. God is a warrior. He's enlisting you into his army. Listen to your orders. Get your marching orders from the commander. Submit yourself to him and go do it. That's it. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is so, so, so amazing that you showed up in that moment to Joshua face to face, gave him his marching orders. And as we read through the rest of that story, the walls of Jericho fall. The people of God take the city. They commit it to you fully. And then they just go on for victory after victory after victory after victory. God, I want that so much in my life. I want that so much for the church today. I want that so much for my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want that so much for the people who are still in the kingdom of darkness but are being invited into the kingdom of your son. God, I want that so much for the families that are struggling. I want it so much for the people who have no hope because there is hope. There is hope. There is victory. God, I just need your help to get my pride or my rebelliousness or my resistance or my desire to be great out of the way. So God, would you take that out of the way for each of us? Whether it's the pride that says, I'm not going to do that foolish thing because I'll look silly. Or the pride that says, I know how to do this. I don't need help. God, just let me be in charge. Or some other kind of pride altogether. Or some other kind of hang-up altogether. Lord, take it away. Lead us to the victory that we so desperately need in the world today. Not by fighting these battles that so many Christians think we need to win, but just by fighting the battles that you know we need to win and that you will win for us and with us. We'll just listen and follow. And God, thank you that you are not passive, that you're a fighter. You've got your sword drawn, ready to go. So I don't need to be afraid. No one in this room or on this call needs to be afraid. We have everything we need in you. Thank you.